0: My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapefruit or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you.
2: You may be seated. Well, we are going to jump right into chapter three this morning as James continues in this letter giving us very practical wisdom for daily Christian living. James is not so much concerned only with the what or the why, but he wants us to know the how. How do we put our faith into practice? How do we live out That which we believe to be true and that which is honoring to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here in the beginning of chapter 3, James turns to the importance of words. Whether they're words that are being brought from a teacher who is teaching the scripture. Or whether it's simply the words that we all use every day to either give life and to build up or to tear down and to bring death. And James 3 begins... In verse 1, with the verse of Scripture that makes every single person who ever teaches the Bible really, really nervous when they read it. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Imagine James writing a letter out to Christians all over the world in churches all over the the world at the time, the Mediterranean world, and saying to them, I hope a lot of you don't choose to become teachers. I hope a lot of you don't start teaching in the church because those of us who teach, we will be judged more strictly. Those who serve as teachers in the church bear great responsibility before God. And, And given the context of everything that James says next, I think he has to be referring specifically here to the responsibility we bear as teachers in what we teach and in what we say. That it is very important whether you are teaching Scripture to a child, to a teenager, to an adult, to a congregation, one-on-one, in a small group, whatever the setting might be, that you remember that, that sitting in the seat of the teacher when it comes to Scripture means to bear great responsibility before God in what is said. And I'm thankful that as we look into the whole of Scripture, we look into the New Testament, we never find a place where any of the apostles were teaching or any pastors were teaching or any elders were teaching in any church. You know what? You ought to just believe whatever feels best for you to believe. Whatever makes you feel best about yourself Whatever you find to be your truth, you should just believe that and you should just run after that. We never see any teaching in Scripture that sounds anything like that. Because it's important that we know, that we remember that there are some standards and there are some boundaries and there are some clear words that God has given to us as His words and they are what we would call orthodox. They are what we call right belief. And even in the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, as we see the church being born, the very first thing we're told that they committed themselves to was the apostles' teaching. That there was this authoritative, biblical teaching being presented in the church, and they held themselves to that standard of teaching what was right, what was orthodox. But I think we would make a mistake... If we only heard james saying That teachers are held accountable for what they say and not for what they do In fact, wouldn't that be a direct contradiction to what we just read at the end of james chapter 2 last sunday Where james says what good is that? What good, good is it if a person claims to have right faith? But they don't match that right faith with right action. What good is it? if we have faith but we have no deeds can such faith save a person no James says that kind of faith it is useless it is dead what good is it if we don't match our words with our actions and I hope we can all agree that when it comes to those who serve as teachers yes what is said matters but the character of that person's life the faithfulness of that person's life it matters as well And so God has set for us, for those who teach and those who would step into the role of Christian leadership, the strong responsibility before him, that we would be orthodox, yes, but that we would also practice orthopraxy, right practice, and that right beliefs and right practice would go together in faithfulness for the one who teaches. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He said to the crowds, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, Jesus said, for they do not practice what they preach. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. We must never fall into the trap of looking the other way when it comes to a person's character and when it comes to a person's life and faithfulness just because we like the things that they are saying. If you listen long enough, and James talks about this later on in this text, if you listen long enough to what a person says, you will eventually hear what is truly in their heart. And holding those two things in balance and intention together, yes, yes, faithfulness in what the teacher says but yes also faithfulness in the content of the teacher's character and in the faithfulness of the teacher's life because all who serve as teachers in the church bear great responsibility to God from this then James moves into the bulk of this section where he talks about words and that the words of our mouths matter. And he begins with what is probably one of the most memorable sections in all of James's letter, giving several examples of how this statement is true, that the tongue is a small part of the body, but it can do a large amount of damage. James returns here to something he introduced in chapter 1, That the true disciple learns to keep a tight rein on his tongue. To keep a tight rein on her tongue. James said back in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And then in verse 26 of chapter 1, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. In the same way here, James continues, the tongue, it is a small part of the body, but it can do a large amount of damage if we don't keep a tight rein on it. Yet I'm so thankful that as... James continues on into verse 2. He gives us some grace, right? He says, but don't forget, because this is really hard. Keeping a tight rein on your tongue is really hard. We all stumble in many ways, right? We all stumble in this area. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say, that person basically is perfect, right? Because if they have the ability to control everything they say, then they can keep their whole body in check at that point. All of us have some room to grow in this area. None of us have yet arrived to the point that we are perfectly able to keep a tight rein on our tongue. Some of you look offended by that. Let me say it a different way. I'll confess first this morning, all right? I have not arrived in this area. I still have room to grow in keeping a tight rein on my tongue. How many of you are with me? All right, testify. Raise your... Okay. All right, I feel a little bit better. We all struggle with this. We all stumble in many ways. And James gives some very practical illustrations, and I love the way that he does this, much like Jesus did when he taught, much like so many of the other great teachers we find in Scripture and great books of wisdom we find in Scripture taught that James gives us lots of examples. So if one of these doesn't really resonate with you, perhaps another will. And the same thing would be true for the first audience who heard the contents of James's letter. The first example in verse 3 is that of bits that are placed into the mouths of horses. People who take care of horses today, train horses, will say that, that the, the ancient practice that they used is much like the practices still used today. If you want to control the direction of a horse, it's done through the small bit that's in the horse's mouth, as James says, that can make a horse obey and can turn the entire animal. In the same way, James is going to say, the tongue, though it is small, it has a great deal of power, and it can turn things in a great way from one direction to the other. If horses aren't so much your thing, James gives another example in verse 4. Or take ships, ancient ships, as an example. Although they are so large and they are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. This is a picture of a ship that's been built by a group of ancient, or a group of Jewish people who are trying to, to sail according to to the ways that ancient mariners would So uh, a few years ago off the coast of Caesarea They discovered the remains of a ship that's that's like 2400 years old And these guys had the bright idea We're going to take the model of that ship that was discovered And we're going to build our own replica of it And we're just going to try day after day using only the wind To see how far we can get out into the Mediterranean, I guess before we either turn back or we cross the point of no return and our ship sinks and we die. I don't know what they're thinking. But these guys have been practicing and practicing and practicing to the point that they've been able to reach all the way to the island of Cyprus using only the wind to get them there. Now, they'll tell you so far, even using modern technology, They are still far away from the skills that the ancient seafarers had that would be passed down from one generation to another, that they would be able to sail as far as as Paul even went on his missionary journeys. But so far, using this ancient method, they've been able to go a pretty good distance. Now, I don't think any of us are going to volunteer to take a ride on this ship when they try to get past Cyprus. But if you look closely at this picture at the very back of the ship, Right under the Israeli flag, you see the rudder. It's a small part of the ship, just like it was used when James was writing about this, and yet it has significant power, even as the wind drives the ship through its sails, to steer it, just like the bit in the, in the mouth of a horse. This is going to go one way or another, and the rudder, as it does for a ship, steering the direction, so can the tongue do in our lives from horses and ships. James next moves to an illustration we can all understand. Verse 5, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire simply by a small spark. Even just in the last few weeks in our own national news, have we not seen the effects of a great forest fire in Canada. How it's not only affecting the people in Canada, but the northern part of the United States, day after day, has been dealing with the effects of a great forest fire that could have easily started from just a small spark. For the people of ancient Israel, living in that that very dry climate, and not only in Israel, in so many places where this letter would have been received, this was common knowledge to everyone. A great forest can be set on fire by just a small spark, and likewise the tongue, though it is a small part of the body, it can do a large amount of damage. And it can control things, even to the point that it gets beyond our control, like a great forest set a fire by a small spark. James continues, The tongue itself, verse 6, is also a fire it is a world of evil among all the other parts of the body it corrupts the whole body it sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by Gehenna the word Gehenna the word for the place of destruction the place of torment we translate it as the place we call hell verse 6 is a really hard verse to translate. There are several verses we've said that about in James's letter. Very hard to translate. One of the reasons I think that it's hard for us to understand this kind of language is not so much because of the way James wrote it, but the way we hear it. We have a tendency to hear words of Scripture and, and, and words of wisdom from Scripture from our more Western individualistic mindset, and we can't help it. That's the way we've been raised. That's the way we've been taught to think. That's the way we've been educated. We often fail to hear Scripture the way the first readers and hearers would have heard it, not from the perspective of Western civilization, but from an ancient worldview, from an Eastern or a Middle Eastern worldview. And in the ancient worldview, the worldview of the people to whom James was writing most of the time, your thought process was not, how does this affect me? But it was, how does it affect us? And ancient people were taught, it was, it was in, in ground into the way that they were raised, into the way that they saw the world. What I do doesn't just affect me. What I do always affects you. And it always affects us. And it always affects my family. And it always affects my tribe. And it always affects my community. What I do has an effect on everyone. And James is saying here the tongue and the damage that it can do can be so widespread in its destruction that it can upset the entire cycle of life. It can upset the entire circle of existence. The whole community can be damaged by just one careless or sinful word that is itself set on fire as if from the fires of hell bringing about damage and destruction further than we can ever imagine. No human being can tame the tongue, James says. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures, they have been tamed and they're being tamed by mankind, but no one, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. And Listen, when we are not walking in the Spirit, when we're not speaking words of life that come from the Spirit, when we're not growing in our Christ-likeness as a disciple who is learning to tame the tongue, learning to keep a tight rein on the tongue, our tongues can also easily be a restless evil, and they can be full of deadly poison. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It sounds good, but we all know that's not true. It's not. Words can do great damage and destruction. How many of us even have moments we can look back at in our lives where it was just one small thing that was said and we still carry it with us today? James is talking about things here like insults words of hatred specifically what he mentions in a moment, curses words of curses lies, slander gossip misinformation half truths words that sow division words that are meant to hurt and are meant to injure selfish words foolish words maybe we would again just say careless words any one of those areas when those are the things that are coming out of our mouths they can not only be a restless evil but they can be deadly poison to those who hear them in many ways the most practical application about our tongues and about the words that come from our mouths goes back to what we read a moment ago from james 119 my dear brothers and sisters take note of this everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak because the tongue is a small part of the body but it can do a large amount of damage you know it's interesting the language that James uses there of words and our tongues corrupting our whole body the root of the word he uses for corrupts is simply the word that means common and I sort of made a mistake this week I told Seth this and I told my son Aiden this I probably shouldn't go down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out how we got the word corrupt from the word common but I couldn't help it I had to do it and and the best that I could come up with in trying to connect these two words is is that idea of being careless in what we said and what we say how often is it a, a careless word just a common word that comes out of our mouths without thinking, without thought, without considering the ramifications that ends up being a corrupting word and a sinful word and one that does great damage to those who hear it. The tongue is a small part of the body that can do a large amount of damage and even the damage that it does can, can resonate to the level of being words that bring death. We read that in proverbs this as our old testament reading just a moment ago the tongue has the power of life and death and james as he concludes this part of the letter talks about that that out of our mouths can come words of life but also words of death so choose choose words of life as a disciple who learns to keep a tight rein on his tongue or her tongue with the tongue james says we praise our lord and father Just as we've been doing this morning as we're, as a part of our corporate worship And at the same time we use it to curse Human beings to curse other people who've been made in god's likeness out of the same mouth can come praise and cursing But james says my brothers and sisters once again this should not be listen long enough to the words that someone says and, and eventually you'll see what's in their heart as we were talking about this week this, week, this text Seth and I were discussing and we, we came back to Matthew 15 and we found this, 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 this direct connection to what James writes and teaching that Jesus offered in Matthew 15 so I'm going to ask Seth to come for a moment and he's going to share with us a little bit more about this connection between James 3 and Matthew 15
1: Thank you, Eric. Before I begin, I just want to say what an honor and privilege it's been to get up in front of you guys and, and help lead in worship and, and speak in front of you guys, and um, learning from Eric this summer has just been um, a gift as well, um, but um, thank you guys for, for, for coming here and, and giving time to the Lord to worship His name and to listen to His word. Um, so we'll be in Matthew 15, but before that, in Matthew 14... Uh, to kind of give a refresher, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Um, right after that, the disciples were on the boat and he met them and was walking on water. And Peter did walk on water but began to sink, and Jesus saved him. Um, they landed at Gennesaret on the other side of the Galilee where Jesus would heal the sick and perform miracles. Um, so in Matthew 15, we see the Pharisees approach Jesus and asking questions about his disciples. This isn't to trick him, this isn't to catch him in a lie, but this is um, a direct confrontation that we see. So, Matthew 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? So the disciples are eating without washing their hands and they're defiling their bodies. Now it's important to note that this um, idea that, that the Pharisees are approaching Jesus about isn't um, a command of God. Um, it is a tradition of the elders and the teachers. They're ignoring God's commands. They're ignoring God's uh, power by putting their own rules before uh, God's. Um, Mark 7 um, the same the same story that we read in Matthew 15, just by a different author, kind of gives a better explanation um, and a further explanation of this idea. It says in Mark 7, verses 3 and 4, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now I can imagine that the Pharisees, you know, washing their hands in the bowl and you know singing "Happy Birthday" two times, three times, whatever, get their hands clean. No, but that was the tradition. That is what they did. And you may think it, it, it's a little gross that the disciples would would eat, you know, uh, with dirty hands because I'm sure there was a lot of sand, a lot of grime, and dirt on their hands um, to follow that. But but Jesus continues um, in Matthew 15. He quotes Isaiah 29 in verses 8 and 9. He says, "These people honor me with their lips." But their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And these Pharisees have read this many times. They've seen the scripture and for Jesus to use it and kind of throw, you know, that scripture back at them is almost kind of, you know, it's kind of sassy. Jesus kind of giving, giving that moment back to them. Um, but these, these rules that they have, that they use, that they're trying to, trying to force on Jesus to, you know, catch him. Is, is putting it over God's commands. Um, Jesus continues in, in verses 10 10 and 11. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, "Listen and understand what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them but what comes out of their mouth that is what defiles them and that's, that's where we see a connection between James 3 and Matthew 15. To finish out Matthew 15, verses 17 through 20, Jesus says, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the thing that comes out of a person's mouth comes from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. The same mouth, that goodness flows, also comes curses. In verse 11 of James 3, we see that the same spring that produces fresh water cannot produce salt water, or salt water rather than fresh water. When we curse, we hurt others and we defile our own bodies. Verse 2 makes it very clear about how we will live. We are going to mess up time and time again. We're going to say things that we regret and we'll realize after, um, just as Eric said, we, we all raised our hands. We're all going to do this at some point in our lives. So that leaves us with two choices. Are we going to use our tongue to glorify God, or are we going to use it to hurt and to curse others? I'll hand it back to Eric to finish off the rest of our passage.
2: Thank you, Seth. And I, I think it's important that we don't misunderstand what Jesus says here in Matthew 15 or James's point as if to say that what we take in also isn't important because there are several other times where scripture and Jesus himself says it is important what you take into your body whether it's through your eyes or through your ears and and the dietary laws of the Hebrew people followed they were there for a reason it's not that what goes in doesn't matter as well but Jesus is saying, James is saying out of our mouths if you listen to someone long enough what they say will tell you what's in their heart And out of our mouths can come things that defile us. Words of life or words of death. Choose to be the one who speaks words of life. Fresh water, verse 11. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. In a dry climate where not only forest fires were common, but also where, where, where drought was common. Everyone understood the importance of a spring, a natural spring. In fact, the people of Israel all throughout Scripture, many times they were dependent upon natural springs for their sustenance and for their fresh water, for their lives. And James says here, if that fresh spring begins to produce water that is salt or is bitter It's no longer water that's going to bring life or bring nourishment. It's water that is is contaminated. It's water that can bring death. We might say it this way, it's no longer life-giving, it's toxic. And we live in a culture where there are toxic words swirling around us all the time. But James says, out of our mouths can come words of life and words of death. Choose the words that give life. And he's given us so many practical examples here to understand this. Things like bits in the mouths of horses, the small rudder of a ship, a small spark that starts a fire. He's compared controlling the tongue to trying to tame wild animals. Salt water, fresh water, fig trees, and olive trees. But before we close, I want to turn to one more example from Hebrew wisdom. And and James is building in his New Testament wisdom upon that Hebrew wisdom that his Jewish background believers receiving these letters would know they'd be familiar with. In Jeremiah chapter 9, we get another example from Scripture, another illustration that at least for me spoke so clearly about why keeping a tight rein on our tongue is so important. In Jeremiah 9, God is speaking about the sins of his people. And specifically here, he talks about the sins of their mouths, the sins of the things they were saying. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With their mouths, they all speak cordially to their neighbors. But in their hearts, they set traps for them. God brings together that importance of the authenticity, the genuineness of speech, but also of life and of action. And he uses the example here of an arrow. The tongue is like a deadly arrow that they shoot and injure others. I looked into some, I was looking into some teaching about this particular example from Jeremiah. And I came across this example from some ancient Jewish rabbis. And I thought it was so perfect, it speaks so clearly in a way that that all of us will understand about how the tongue can be deadly like an arrow. Here's what the rabbis wrote. The tongue, in Jeremiah's writing, is compared to an arrow and not to a sword. Why? Because if a person draws a sword to kill his fellow man, the intended victim can beg for mercy and the attacker can change his mind and return the sword to its sheath but an arrow once it has been shot and begun its journey even if the shooter wants to stop it he cannot in the same way a careless word a selfish word oh a cursing word a sinful word once the arrow has left the bow we cannot pull it back there's nothing we can do and all of us have moments in our lives where we have shot out that arrow and we wish today we could pull it back but we can't sinful toxic words that bring death rather than life cannot be taken back and just as a saltwater spring produces bitter and contaminated water so will a sinful heart produce words of death rather than words of life but I don't know about you, I'd like to end on a positive note this morning. You good with that? Yes, words that tear down and words that are born from a sinful heart and words that bring death, once they're spoken, they cannot be taken back. But on the other hand, a heart that is connected to God, a heart that is producing Christ-like character, will produce life-giving words that build up and do not tear down. And the words that give life will outlive the words that bring death. The words that give life will outlive the words that bring death because the words that give life that are built upon the foundational truths of God and the truths of God's word that he has given to us that we might be life-giving in our words and not death-giving in our words, those are the words we will use to praise him forever and ever in his presence in eternity. They will outlive the words of death because when we stand before God, there will be no more words of death. There will only be words of life if you like me have a lot of regret about arrows that you've shot out and words you wish you could take back, become the kind of disciple who keeps a tight rein on his tongue or a tight rein on her tongue who is slow to speak and quick to listen and speak words of life that will outlive those words of death and let that be your legacy. Let that be how you're remembered. Let that be the kind of person that you are that someday when you stand before god You'll know that those words of life are the words that will live forever and this morning I want to speak some words of life over us as we close And what I want us to do is as we're preparing here in just a moment We're going to have a time of invitation and response Before we do that before we stand up I I want you right there where you are to to get in in your best posture of receiving, okay? Whatever that looks like for you. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel. Maybe the first thing to do to get in that posture is just to take a deep breath and and just try to relax your shoulders a little bit, which I know for me it's hard to do sometimes. But try your best to get into a posture of receiving. Maybe you need to open your hands to receive, And what I want to do for just a moment I pray that this comes directly from the Holy Spirit speaking into my heart speaking into your heart. I want to just speak some words of life that come from the word of God over us and I want you to receive them. Get into that posture of receiving and let these these words of life that will outlive any words of death be the words that you hear God speaking to your heart today. Let's get into that posture of receiving And This morning would you hear these words of life God loves you It doesn't matter that you've sinned against him That doesn't affect his love for you God loves you and he loves you so much That even though you had sinned against him Even though you have shot arrows That have hurt his heart He loves you so much that He gave His one and only Son to die on the cross, to take your sin upon His own shoulders. And He loves you so much that He gave His one and only Son that that whoever believes in the Son will be given life. That whoever believes in the Son is not condemned to Gehenna, not condemned to the place of death and destruction. But whoever believes in the Son receives life, eternal life, everlasting life. And God loves you so much that he took the initiative to make that life available, to make that life possible. You did nothing to earn it, and there's nothing you could do to earn it. But God loves you so much that he has given you that gift anyway. Today if you believe upon the name of his son for salvation you'll not only experience eternal life but walking, being filled with the Holy Spirit of God you will experience the fullest measure of life right here and now. And you will never know a greater level of peace or joy or fulfillment. God has a wonderful purpose and plan for your life and you will find that seeking his will as you surrender your life to jesus christ and again all of this is because god loves you that much today would you simply in this posture of receiving give him thanks for his love give him thanks for his grace give him thanks for his mercy and forgiveness and would you receive these life-giving words that God has given us through his, his word, his scriptures, and commit yourself to be a person who will share those life-giving words with others because those are the words that will last forever. God, I thank you for each and every person who's here, each and every person who's watching online, and I pray that in this last moment as we have a time of invitation and response, that you would draw every heart close to you. If there's any person who needs to step out today and to come to you and surrender today, Lord, would you draw them through your spirit. And as we have lifted up the name of Jesus, as we have lifted up the cross, as we consider the victory that we have over sin and death because of the cross and your resurrection, Lord, would you draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.